Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 25 of Middle Ground Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gane. Derek, I want to play another game with you. Hold on. Uh, this one's super, super easy. Oh, it's Isabel Arf. There we um, go. You're, another you're, game, getting better, you're getting better at forcing me to say my name early on. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you, what do you think is the dumbest thing that you could possibly have a, uh, like an Internet of Things version of? Something that you use every day that could be quote unquote smart if you decided to make it so. I think I, I, I think I know the answer to this because uh, my lovely girlfriend, Stephanie, brought it up to me yesterday. Okay. Um, the answer is a, a menstrual cup. Oh, I, that was not where I was going, but... Oh. <laughs> is, yeah, there, is, there, a, is, there, is there a smart menstrual cup? Yeah, there's an Internet of Things menstrual cup. Hell yeah, I love that. <laughs> Mine is not as good as that, unfortunately. All right, but, it does have, it? but it does have a word that I like quite a bit. So... Uh, this Does is going to be a longer one because there's a lot to this text, but it's all really good. So uh, all right. uh, this is from The Verge. Uh, a, a smart toilet could identify you by your anal print and detect diseases. <laughs> uh, the Verge, the vanguard of tech journalism. I love The Verge. But this is the, they're, they're, the this is their shit. This high, is what they live for. High floor, low ceiling material at The Verge. <laughs> A prototype smart toilet that can identify you by your, quote, anal print and monitor your trip to the loo has been created by researchers at Stanford University. God, it's equipped with cameras and sensors that collect information on your bodily waste and uses the data to look for any health issues you might, you might have. The anal print is the toilet's primary way of identifying each user. Much to the author's dismay, it's also the answer to the toilet that's gotten most attention since the paper describing the proto-toilet was published in a press release in the journal Nature, and Bio- Nature Biomedical Engineering on Monday. It's a minor part of our system, a senior researcher scientist at Stanford University said. I, I feel like that's the thing you got to like emphasize, though. Like, hey, we even uh, like a fingerprint for your asshole. <laughs> uh, are the are the are 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 our assholes unique? Well, I'm. It's funny you ask that because the next <laughs> paragraph answers that. The idea yes, for an anal print was sparked by Salvador Dali. Mm. who discovered that, quote, the anus has 35 or 37 creases, uh, creases which are as unique as fingerprints. Sorry, we which just take Dolly's word for it. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, I don't think that anyone has actually taken the effort to see whether that is correct. I feel like that's just something that Salvador Dali might have said. Salvador Dali said a lot of do. Um, But a prototype device, which is modular and can be uh, attached to most standard toilets, uses a Raspberry Pi with a camera to capture each person's unique anal print. So you just got to get a bunch of pictures of your asshole if you want this thing to work. So between this like sort of anal scan and like the sort of Instagram bidets that I can get, there's a whole like internet of toilets marketplace. Yeah, there's a whole market for people who really want to like see their poop and like see their butthole. <laughs> Which I mean, there was already a market for that, just not in the same sense previously. I mean, I got a mirror. 
you know? <laughs> yeah, but this one uh, will measure urodynamics, which details flow rate, magnitude, and stream time for each participant's urine, and then compares the data to see if there are any patterns between the bodily waste of healthy and un- unhealthy bodies. I mean, um, the stool will be classified using the Bristol stool form scale, my. which sorts people's excrement into seven distinct classes from hard lumps to watery. I don't know uh, if I'm into the idea of the NSA knowing how hard my shits are. <laughs> well, the thing that I always love about Internet of Things things is that theoretically this is all going to an app somewhere uh-huh. and it's all going to the cloud. So if someone were to hijack your toilet, they could <laughs> A, get uh. more pictures of your asshole than they know what to do with. Uh, and B, they could know like when you're shitting, how often you're shitting, like how long it lasts for. And that sounds like an easy way to get robbed in a very strange way. Oh man. I can't even imagine. That's like, I, I, feel like that we... I feel like one of these must have been secretly installed at the previous place I lived at and was just used to prank me because <laughs> when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, whenever I would be waiting for a package to come that day, I would constantly wait and wait and wait and be like, oh, I shouldn't go to the bathroom because as soon as I go to the bathroom, they're going to be here. And I'd wait as long as I could. And then finally I would need to go to the bathroom. And then as soon as I was in the bathroom, that's when they would knock on the door. This happened like I'm saying once every like week or two. It was consistent and it felt at a certain point like I was being set up for the worst Hitchcock like thriller possible. Oh, man. I have some fun stories about that toilet experience in the Pacific (laughs) Northwest. Uh, I got hurt by a spider while I was on one. How? Did a spider bite uh, your ass? No. Uh, so I was, uh, I was pooping as one does. As one does. Uh, on the toilet. Uh-huh. And, uh, this was my first week there, by the way. In the Pacific Northwest. In the Pacific Northwest. Okay. And at that apartment. And I was pooping in the toilet. You know, pants around my ankles like you do. Uh-huh. Uh, and a spider ran between my, between my legs. Uh-oh. And I freaked out and ran. The problem was does. it's very hard to run with pants around your ankles. So I ended up um, tripping and face planting onto my carpet and getting rug burns so bad on both my knees that the next day at work, they were bleeding through my leggings. That's a hell of a sentence you just said there, Isabel. Uh, it's it's 100% the truth. I'm I'm not, I'm, I'm George Washingtoning this. I'm not telling <laughs> a lie. Uh, and not to blow up your spot, but you're particularly afraid of spiders? Oh, incredibly afraid of spiders. There we go. Mm. And was it like, 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 no joke, that same day when I saw that spider for the first time and I couldn't find it again, so I couldn't get it out of the house, I almost stayed in a hotel because I was so worried. Was it like one of those like teeny tiny, teeny tiny dealies or was it like a big fuck off like? It was a big wolf spider. Oof. Because Blizzard Northwest has a ton of spiders. Turns out. Because, I mean, it's wet and it's it's moist. Spiders like both those things. And uh, they would... Always be chill during the winter when it was raining outside all the time. And, and then as the soon spring, as summer came, it uh, just, it, it was a blossoming of spiders. A blossoming of spiders. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not good. I actually had a, a partner out there who would keep her window open and there was like spiders who lived in her room. And she like was no, just cool with that. Like no screen. Nope. Just like I, I got some daddy long legs is hanging out in the bathroom, but you know. Oh God, that makes me want to puke. I mean... What the fuck am I going to do? Just kill this? They don't do anything. They just eat other bugs. Yeah. Take them outside. I don't know, man. I can't go outside. There's fucking lockdown on. I just, I, I wouldn't go into that bathroom. Well, I mean. <laughs> I was going to say, look, luckily this, this partner 
Um, somehow I had the spiders trained so they never came near the bed. Don't know how that worked, but what? That, I, I, I swear to God, that is like a hundred percent true. I never saw one anywhere near the bed, which is the only reason I was cool with staying over. It's is it? That sounds like a lie. <laughs> like, it's like 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 unless you were dating some manner of druid. <laughs> I mean, they were certainly somewhere around there in the ballpark. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you know what isn't in the ballpark of druidism? Ooh, I'm really that's, grasping that's at straws. Tortured one right there, but go for it, Derek. Keep run with it. Motion pictures, baby. Listen, they can't all be winners, okay? Aren't motion pictures a form of magic, though? Movie magic. Movie magic. You're right. Well, see, not only did my transition suck, it wasn't even accurate. So, ostensibly, what we do on this show is we don't talk about um, uh, the potential druidic traits of one's partners. Or, uh, or even anything related to spiders. Or uh, any of that bullshit. We talk about movies. We just talked about spiders last week when we talked about Lord of the Rings. So That's true. I guess you're we lying talk right about, now. We talk about spiders about as often as we talk about cum. <laughs> hopefully never the, never the twain shall meet. Yeah, hopefully no one uses that as a pull quote. Because I figure that I figure our already precariously known numbers are going to nosedive. <laughs> I mean, hey, we got we have people on the Discord. That's all I could ask for. That's right. And by the way, if you want to be, uh, if you want to join our little Discord, uh, we're going to we're going to make it so that's available in some way, in some in some manner. Because it turns there'll out there'll be a link in like the description for this thing or whatever. Yes, you'll find a link in show notes. Thank you, Isabel. Because um, yeah, we're like we're what like 15, 20 in the in the in the Middlebrow Madness Discord right now. About double what I expected. Let's just say that. Oh, me, it's like like three times easily what I expected. But um, we do talk about movies, specifically the Internet Movie Database's top 250 movies of all time, circa August 2018. Now, what we do on this show is we take those 250, well, we have taken those 250 movies plus six ringers that we've chosen that are bubbling under that 250 to make one giant 256 seed bracket. And we pair up movies against each other until we get to uh, what we will determine to be the greatest movie of all time, asterisk. Um, we are in the thick of round one still, and we're going to talk about uh, four movies, two pairs of two, including one movie that, not to blow up our spot, has no fucking business here. One of these things is not like the other, dear listener. Uh, and not not movies- even the way that like we haven't liked previous movies. In a completely different way. Mm-hmm. This is going... Uh, the way it goes a lot is movies that are bad generate the most material. And boy, howdy, do we have a lot to say <laughs> about this one. Uh, the matchups for today are Amadeus versus Sunrise and Gladiator versus Hashi, a dog's tail. Uh, so uh, let's jump right into uh, our first matchup. So the 82 seed, Amadeus. Directed by Milos Forman, uh, written by Peter Schaefer, based on Amadeus by Peter Schaefer, starring uh, F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulse, Elizabeth Barrage, and Simon Callow. Um, da, 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 da. Cost $18 million to make, made $90 million in 1984 bucks. I forgot to mention that what this was a 1984 film. And uh, did pretty goddamn good at the Academy Awards, going 8 for 11, winning Best Picture 
actor for F. Murray Abraham, director, adapted screenplay, art direction, costume design, makeup, and sound. Versus the 175 seed, Sunrise, colon, A Song of Two Humans, uh, released in 1927, directed by F.W. Murnau, written by Carl Meyer, starring George O'Brien, Janet Gaynor, and Margaret Livingston. Uh, I don't really have any kind of like um, budget deets on this or any kind of uh, uh, box office take details. I mean, it was relatively expensive. It was relatively expensive. It was a flop, but uh, it did win, an account- despite being released in uh, 1927, it did uh, win. Uh, it went three for four at the 1929 Oscars. Uh, winning Best Actress, Best Cinematography, best uh, nominated for Best Art Direction, and winning the only ever award for Best Unique and Artistic Picture. <laughs> it did not win Best Picture. That, if you remember, dear trivia buffs, went to Wings, which is the officially officially designated Best Picture. And basically, uh, Sunrise got like the consolation prize. So even early on, the Oscars told us what they were about right from the jump. I mean, the Oscars just really like Tony Shalhoub. <laughs> that was a Wings joke for uh, all the Wings fans in the audience. Like the fucking Craig T. Nelson show? Yes. No, that's... Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, don't, listen, don't fuck with me. I know. Uh, Tony no, no. Shalhoub was Antonio Scarapacci on there. Oh, my God. Let's um, talk about Wings for a little bit. Thomas Hayden Church, <laughs> David Schramm, Tim Daly, about- Steve Weber, Crystal Bernard. That's a stacked cast right there. I don't know anything about Wings other than like Craig T. Nelson's in it. People should watch Wings. It's, it's fine. It's fine? Also, I'm pretty sure Craig T. Nelson is not in that show. In Wings? Yeah. He's definitely not in, like, if he was, he was a relatively like small part. I, uh, I'm on the Wings Wikipedia page and I'm almost certain you're wrong. Are you thinking of Coach? Maybe I'm thinking of Coach. Wings was the one about uh, airline pilots. Coach was the one about the coach. Which definitely had Craig T. Nelson. He was the coach. Okay. No, I think you're right. Wings? Well, here's the thing. Wings and coach are both in the section of my brain that's labeled TV shows from the 80s and 90s with titles that are one word and five letters long. And related to aviation. And related to aviation. Wings and coach are perfectly fine shows. I would recommend them over Cheers. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I I personally thought Cheers was no great shakes, but Wings and coach are... uh, exemplars of their form that being the middling 90s sitcom better or worse than night court oh worse than night court night court owns night court does own it's still my uh, my phone ringtone oh really <laughs> yep <sighs> ah, well that was a fun digression let's talk about amadeus yeah um so i hadn't seen this before and this is kind of a um for me at least it was kind of a dust boot situation where it's like this is a movie from the 1980s that was very well liked and very well respected that I had not seen before. And uh, coming in at nearly three hours long, and actually at three hours long, because I ended up watching the uh, the director's cut. As did I. And it's like, this is something that maybe I was going to get to eventually. Uh, and um, I don't think it's as good as Das Boot. And I don't think it was as big of a revelation as Das Boot. But there's a lot to like in this movie. I thought it was very good. I think we're almost exactly on the same page there, um, where I was not looking forward to watching it. Uh, it seemed like a pain in the ass to sit through. Um, it also did not seem like my cup of tea, even though I do quite like uh, the classical music. The classical but music. There was quite a bit 
to enjoy here, especially the performances. I think the two lead performances are both stellar. Yes. Um, but I also don't think it's quite as good as maybe everyone else does. Um, I don't know if I, w- it's, it's good. It's really good. Yes. It's, it's um, certainly good. I think like if I were reviewing movies that year, it might've been one of the, maybe one of the best things I saw in major release. I think, yeah, I think if I were to like go back and draft like a top 10, maybe it cracks a top 10, definitely top 15. Yeah, I would sure, I, I I let, see that. Let's, let's put it this way. I'm not angry that it won all those awards. Okay. You know? <laughs> I don't know who it won against, but I'm not pissed off at the fact that it was Best Picture and Foreman got Best Direct, uh, Best Director and F. Murray Abraham won Best Actor. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the great Sour Grapes movies of all time. Yes. And F. Murray Abraham has, I think you said in the chat, one of the best, like, I can't believe this fucking guy faces. It's, I think that's what puts him over the top to win the Oscar. It's He has the perfect command of his face to be like... This is rapturous and divine, but I fucking hate that it came out of him. Yes. And to his credit, Tom Hulse, who uh, the, Tom Hulse is a very, very, very interesting actor. I'm not familiar with his stage stuff. He's been in very, very few movies for someone who's been working since like the 70s. Mm-hmm. We, I mostly knew him as the straight man from Animal House. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also the voice of Quasimodo in the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yes, which is also an interesting role, let's say. Let's let's put it this way. I would be really interested to go back because I always considered Hunchback to be kind of like a dark horse Disney movie, kind of like a, a, a like a Fox and the Hound kind of thing where it's like, there's probably more stuff there than I give it credit for, but also probably mad problematic now. <laughs> it's partially that. It's also that I think it has some of the highest points of any Disney movie, like uh, the villain song, uh, that uh, Fro- that Frollo sings, I believe, is the That's best right. villain song. It's pretty it's incredible. Uh, and then there's also stuff like Jason Alexander, uh, not to foreshadow a future movie we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, but Jason Alexander is one of the gargoyles uh, who farts a bunch. <laughs> and you know who farts a lot in this fucking movie? Tom Hulse. Wolfgang baby. Amadeus Mozart. Yeah. Um, Tom Hulse, to his credit. Um, imbues this sniveling shit with an annoying laugh and a propensity for fart noises. Yeah. With I, I love just... that laugh. I, I, I was a little off on it at first, but then the more it happens, the more I ended up loving it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like working as intended. Uh, and imbues, uh, he successfully makes this petulant child or man child into kind of a tragic character. Yes. And which is hard to do because on the page, he's kind of insufferable. He's an asshole. He sucks so hard. So this movie is not just the two central performances. It is a lot, the two central performances, mm-hmm. but it's very, it's almost, I don't want to invoke the, uh, the, the holy name of Ken Russell, but I figured this is like a very cleaned up, scrubbed up version of a Ken Russell movie. It's a historical film. It plays very, very fast and loose with, um, reality, with reality. Um, it's very, it's so opulent and it's so, um, it's so it, it looks like such a sumptuous piece of art. See, that's actually one of the things that failed for me. Yeah. Um, I thought it looked fine, but I think that I've been I've been trained on other movies uh, that go for similar aesthetics that do them in ways that I found more invigorating. And because of that, it ended up feeling a little too middle of the road for me. Uh, like when I think of like really sumptuous, just like s- sensuous kind of period piece. 
I think of something like Marie Antoinette, the uh, which what's I her have name? not seen. The, the Coppola film, yes, uh, which is wonderful. Everyone should watch it. It's, it, it deserves reappraisal. Uh, and when I think of like, I think that movie has a lot of fans though. I oh don't yeah, think it's, it's maligned. Yeah, it's it, it was a little iffy when it came out, and then it's gotten I think the due it needs to get. Um, and then if I think of like realistic, let's say depictions of period pieces. I think of something, or, or at least like dirtier depictions. I think of Story of My Death by Albert Serra, which is just feels like grimy and gross, even though it's set in these incredibly sumptuous palaces and everyone's wearing like the wonderful elaborate makeup, but also you can see that it's just caked on and it's heavy and it feels it feels sweaty the entire time and old and dusty in a really off, like a really off-putting but enjoyable way. I recommend that film to anyone who has a lot of time to deal with a lot of pretentious shit, by the way. I, th- I think it's a wonderful <laughs> film. I also think that most people would hate it. But what about something like if you're going to say Barry Lyndon, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I was, was going to say that's like closer to Amadeus, but it's a little more rough hewn. Mm-hmm. Which I'm so, very excited to see that. That's the only Kubrick I haven't seen. So it's pretty fucking great. I got to say. <laughs> and luckily it's coming up later on this list. But yeah, that's one thing hey. that didn't work for me. But one thing I do want to point out that I actually loved quite a bit mm-hmm. is that um, I like classical music. So I was mm-hmm. already predisposed to like the songs in this film. Mm-hmm. But I think looking at it from someone, the perspective of someone who doesn't have that outsider or that doesn't have that insider's perspective. Like me. I, exactly. Uh, would you agree that it does a really good job of showcasing how these pieces actually feel and what they mean in like their context of the day? Like, d- like when Amadeus parodies other composers... That should yes. be a silly in joke that is completely inaccessible if you don't know those composers, but he does it in such a way and it's shot in such a way that you get what's being given out. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah. Because there's like there's a couple things with that. Um, one, uh, I mean, at the very very beginning of the movie with a uh, fucking old ass F. Murray Abraham in the uh, in the yes. uh, and where he plays the melodies. Yeah, yeah, where he plays the melodies, it's like, I literally didn't know any of the Salieri pieces, but I did recognize the Mozart. So it's like, hey, yeah. that's, so that's, that's like just perfect. Um, also, uh, to your point about the sort of stylistic parodies that Mozart does, um, I, I really, <laughs> I was very entertained by basically the him stunt playing something upside down, a la Bach. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because there's like practically no difference between that and like Eddie Van Halen playing guitar with his teeth. This is the 100%. Same thing. Yes. We've been doing this for 400 years. <laughs> and uh, I especially really love the way that the, uh, the you see one uh, opera by Salieri, which mm-hmm. you can tell just from looking at it that it's just a mediocre opera, that there's nothing really substantial about it, nothing like world changing. Whereas when you see. In the pocket. Yeah. Whereas when you see Mozart's operas, it feels grandiose. It feels like larger than life. As cliche as it is, it feels bigger than the screen. Real good job with like the sets of those operas. Yes, very much so. It's just, it's great. It's just great practical filmmaking. Um, Foreman kind of directs the shit out of this. He's kind of unobtrusive, but um, this like, I mean, I think it's, um, Milos Foreman has had kind of a weird career. Yes. He's not he's not someone with like a great sense of like um like I don't know if I could tell a Milos Forman movie from how it looks. But it's clear that he's kind of like the kind of uh I don't want to say that he's just like sort of a uh, how to say 
because I don't want to I don't want to damn Milos Forman with faint praise because <laughs> he doesn't have like a sense of visual style. But if uh, good editing is editing you can't see, then Milos Forman is a great director. Yes, I, I totally get where you're coming from with that. Because like some directors are great because of the flash, because of the attention drawn to the mechanism of direction. But then yeah. there's this whole other category of like a little more uh, artisanal, I guess, and giant quotation marks. This is not a value judgment where the direction is just so robust that you don't notice. The Sydney Lumet is another one of those guys. Oh, I, I was literally about to say that. Yeah, I think I think a lot of like older Hollywood directors would definitely fit into that category. Um, because just the Foreman films that I've seen, like the '60s stuff, like uh, *Loves of a Blonde*. And the 90s Hollywood stuff like Man on the Moon, these are not movies that are flashy, but you could never accuse Milo Schwarman of being a poor director. Yeah. Uh, and my personal favorite of his is still Fireman's Ball, which is wonderful. And it's very subtly directed, but the choices he makes a subtle director, sure. are really, really good. There's a shot. I'm, I'm going to spoil my favorite shot in uh, Fireman's Ball. I apologize. Uh, okay. Everyone should watch it. Uh, unfortunately, the Criterion disc is super old, so hopefully they come out a new one it. soon. Yeah, so do I. Uh, and the best shot in the movie is basically the firemen arrive too late to save someone's house uh, as it's burning down, and you just see the person looking at their house as it's burning down, and then the firemen come up like right behind her and give her a chair to sit down in so she can watch her house burn down. <laughs> it's a wonderful shot, uh, and it kind of it's the thesis statement of the entire film uh, and i think those kind of moments where it's just we're not going to show off we're not going to do a long wonder we're not going to do a bunch of stylistic things that i mean you and i derek like quite a bit i mean we're both giant mm-hmm. michael mann fans we both like style yes uh and i personally think that style is substance a great great deal of the time but mm-hmm. it's nice to see someone also just work with the tools as they're given in a very very good way yeah because dir- directing is deciding Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that Foreman is, uh, like you said, uh, uh, the decisions are subtle, but there's also kind of like a dry sense of humor that pervades, like, at least everything that I've seen so far. Yes. Agreed. Um, that, that, that shows up in all of his films. So when I say, and this like goes back to the past and into the future, when I say that someone like a director is kind of like a carpenter or an artisan, this is not to say that they don't have any like sort of, personal style this is just because they lack a certain amount of flash mm-hmm. which is neither here nor there you could be a non-flashy director and be great and you could be a non-flashy director and be dull as shit yes now let's talk about a movie with a ton of flash <laughs> so uh this was another first timer for me uh which is kind of shameful because all i've heard for all of my cinephile life is fucking sunrise one of the great silence uh fucking fw murnau bringing it to hollywood and goddamn, the like, believe the hype. This was fucking fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. I was enraptured from the beginning to the end. Yes. So it also if it's, I a, it's a deeply strange film and a, a lot of really interesting super ways. Super weird. So if I were to give like a quick sort of tweet length summary of this movie, it would be something like um, German expressionist filmmaker makes Hollywood mel- and makes Hollywood. Uh, what would you call this? A uh, like a, a romantic like a horror rom com? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, like uh, it's it's kind of three movies in one. Each act is like a different style or a different feeling. Yes, yes. 
because the first act is this like expressionist horror film. It's like a murder ballad. Yeah, it's like terrifying. It's it's so well shot and it's so I mean the entire movie is incredibly well shot, but mm-hmm. you can really see the expressionist like the you can see Nosferatu in those early scenes. Like fucking double exposures. Triple exposure, some of them. Like there's that one shot that I I love where the husband, for the, I mean, for those who don't know, it's about a husband who tries to murder his wife, feels regret. They go to the city and rebond together. And then basically they come back and they're happy. That's it. Yeah, that's um, all it is. And the reason he tries to kill his wife is because this woman from the city has convinced him that he should. A foul temptress from the city. Yes. And there's a shot uh, early on the movie in that first act where the husband is just like standing uh, or... Uh, I think he's like sitting, I believe in a he's field. sitting in bed. Oh yeah, sitting in bed. And then you see just ver- like various uh, images of the city woman come and caress him and like multiple ones hovering over him, hovering on the side of him. And he just feels surrounded with her presence. It is, it's such a simple effect. I mean, for us now, it's easy to produce. Obviously it was much, much, much harder back then. Uh, but just to see it done in such an elegant and beautiful way, and it feels so poetic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Kind of, so cool. It's these kind of simple tricks that this is why watching old movies can be kind of galvanizing because there's this whole this whole slew of tricks that no one tries anywhere because we kind of evolved past them. Mm-hmm. Not to say that if, if someone were to do this now, it would be considered kind of pastiche. It would probably be weird in the context of like... I mean, it's Guy like, Madden, right? It's Guy Madden. That's true. Who... Amazing filmmaker, but does operate in kind of a pastiche form, uh, a kind of conversational pastiche form with the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is like it's the cardboard sets, the impossible angled expressionist sets. It's um, it's the uh, it's like just kind of like simple green screen. It's there's there's that shot early on where it's just blending like the the band from the city and like the noise and like you see so many overlaid shots of the city swirling mm-hmm. around with really simple camera effects that feels totally disorienting. There's um, what else is there? There's drunk pigs. There's More movies pig. should have drunk pigs. Like I I like I want to think that they didn't actually get a pig drunk, but um, I feel like they probably the, got a pig the best, drunk. The best, I think they probably got a pig drunk, but my my sneaking suspicion is that they either slicked up the floor with like lard or something, oh, or yeah. they just angled the set, the angled the uh, the the set uh, the the floor of the set, and adjusted the camera because you'll notice whenever the pig is drunk, the pig doesn't move all that much. Mm-hmm. So and it, it looks as if it's trying to like climb something, but since the floor looks level, it looks like the pig is staggering. Yes. That's my pet theory. Okay. Hey, we'll have to uh, get on the phone with FW now if we can. Yes. Call him up. See if he's on Twitter somewhere. (laughs) So the second part of the film is um, it becomes basically a city, uh, a city film for any city USA. Yes. Um, uh, Which they built that whole back lot. Like uh, that, that whole city set was just built in the back lot and ended up being used in a bunch of other films too. Yeah. Um, And whereas in the first act, it was very much like the city is a contemptible place full of people that are going to swindle you. The second part is, well, the second, yeah, the second part is more like the city is a place of wonder with the power to heal. And I thought it was an inter- among all the interesting pivots that this film does. That was the most interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so they basically go to a cafe. They go to a barbershop. A barbershop. 
they go to a wedding and at the wedding um the the husband uh they, these characters don't have any names by the way mm-hmm. the man uh, uh basically uh faces the full weight of his guilt and what he has tried to do in the previous act and then there's like hijinks at a photographer's yeah which is just a completely <laughs> slapstick scene where it's like Oh, uh, oh, we, because because during the city parts, they kind of accentuate the country bumpkinness of these characters. Yes, and and also like 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 a like a purity to them as well. Like yes. there's there's the dance later on the like the country folk dance that they do the folk dance, yeah, yeah, that uh, is wonderful and is entirely like theirs, and you just see them as like unique creatures among the city, uh, getting to kind of show these people what they don't have in the city. Yeah, it's like, oh shit, there's a pig on the loose. Well, fuck me, I do that all the time. Yeah, I, I wrangle, I wrangle loose pigs constantly. Just real quick, uh, with the wedding, one thing I want to point out that I think is really interesting is that yeah, I think another thing that silent films did really well and that we that have, has kind of fallen by the wayside is engaging in story as as fable and allegory and not necessarily as literal reading, because mm-hmm. if you literally read this film. It's about a man who was going to kill his wife. He was going to like yes. drown her. And <laughs> yes. then like 10 minutes later, we're supposed to be cool with that more or less because he's basically apologized. He's realized that what he did was wrong and we can now go do the hijinks. Uh, <laughs> and that works incredibly well in this film. I, like, I think that that moment in the church is so powerful. And then seeing them walk out of the church like as if they're the newly married couple is such a great image. Uh, such a great yeah, that's r- symbol for like the rebirth of their relationship. Yeah, perfect symbol for it. And you can just do that. You don't have to explain away. You don't have to say like, "Hey, here's let's go through like 16 hours of this scenario." You can just read it as allegory. And then Act Three. Now that homeboy has something to lose, they get caught in a freak storm on the way back home. Yes. And then it becomes a fucking disaster movie. It becomes a drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, you should 100% watch this. It's in the public domain. Watch it on YouTube. Yeah, I did. It's incredible. Um, and especially want- like that, that last section, I won't give the context for it, but there's a shot where you basically see the husband's like is looking straight into the camera, uh, like <sighs> silently screaming. And there's just like this look of such, there's this incredible look on his face. It's one of my favorite like acting things I've seen all year. It's amazing. They're, they knew their array like, the fucking Europeans in the early 20th century knew their way around a fucking close-up of a face, boy. Yes. They fucking had that shit down pat. Uh, all right. So these are two good movies, but I think one may be gooder than the other. Yes, I would I would agree. I think that one is very possibly one of the pinnacles of silent Hollywood. Uh-huh. And the other one is a very good movie from the 80s. Um, I think I think it was Dave Kerr who said the great Dave Kerr, who said, um, uh, that Sunrise was the greatest foreign film ever made in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why he's one of the best. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and assume that Sunrise, colon, A Tale of Two Humans moves on. Yes. And also, I'm very oh, excited right. to watch it again. A, because I want to watch the, the check cut, because apparently that's different. Like, uses okay. a lot of different shots and everything. I'm excited to see what that looks like. And also, because I really want to talk about, uh, I think there's a lot of, like, capitalist, communist, socialist undertones in sunrise that would be really interesting to look at yeah i think yeah i think you're right i think it would be interesting to look at it through that lens yeah oh boy how about this how about two movies that are not interesting except uh, they're meta interesting i think the films themselves are not very good but i think like as a meta discussion these are both pretty meaty 
I yeah, I think I think there's a lot to talk about for these next two movies. Um, so uh, in the uh, the back half of our uh, matchups for today, we have the 47th seed, the 47th Jesus best movie Christ. of all time. I don't even think this is the 47th best Ridley Scott movie. Um, <laughs> I, I think I would agree. Yeah. Um, a Gladiator, released in the year 2000, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, written by David Frazzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson, starring Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, Connie Nielsen, and Oliver Reed. Uh, this movie cost $103 million and made $460.5 million in uh, 2000s bucks, in Y2K bucks. It did well for itself. It did pretty well for itself. It also did pretty well for itself at the Academy Awards, uh, where it went 5 for 7, winning... Um, a best original. Oh wait, it won five and was nominated for an additional seven, so it went five for twelve. Good lord! It uh, it won best picture, best actor for Russell Crowe, best costume design, best sound, and best visual effects. We'll talk about the visual effects. Yes. Um, uh, versus. All right, the two hundred and ten seed, Hachi: A Dog's Tale. Also, best picture winner. Yes, uh, released in two thousand nine. Directed by Lassa Hallstrom, uh, written by Stephen P. Lindsay, based on Hashiko Monogatari by Keneto Shindo, starring Richard Gere, Joan Allen, Eric Avari, Jason Alexander, and uh, who else is in this movie that I recognized? There's a, there's a couple of like character actors here that I recognized. Yeah, there's like the guy from The uh, Mummy. There's the guy from The Mummy, exactly. And uh, there was uh, uh, the token Japanese guy who was in The Last Emperor. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, six. This movie cost sixteen million dollars to make. That is, uh, there's no that's the first I'm hearing of it. That is, there's no way that costs that much. This looks like it was made for like five hundred dollars on a weekend, <laughs> and it made forty six point seven. How is this, how how uh, had I never heard of this film before? We'll get to that. Yes. First, we're going to talk about Gladiator. So we we we've talked in the past about hot couch guy movies. Yes. We've talked about sort of dorm room movies. I think that this might be an entry into the Hot Couch Guy Movie Hall of Fame. I think I would agree. I, I think especially like the like Are You Not Entertained? That kind of that, those kind of quotes. One hundred percent. It gets it there. Um, because this is, for all intents and purposes, a one hundred million dollar uh, Italian gladiator film from the sixties. Yes, it it revitalized the uh, sword and sandals genre before it immediately died again because everyone realized that no one wanted to see that. I mean. At least we got a nice Ronnie Harlan movie out of it, right? Uh, which one did he make? Uh, I think it's called like like Hercules the Last Something. Hercules the Last Emperor? That's not it. I'll look it up while you're doing other stuff. Um, and I think Paul W.S. Anderson kind of got in on it with Pompeii a little bit. Well, that's a good movie, though. Let's not, let's not shit on Pompeii. Let's I mean, not shit on, on right. the, the vulgar tourism. No, that movie's fine. Um, so You're going to get excommunicated from film Twitter for saying that movie <laughs> is worry. anything less than a masterpiece. I don't personally it's think fun. it is. Like, I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I know where to tread. So, sure, it's a masterpiece. Like, I'm not saying, like, that... Uh, God, what other movies has Paul W.S. done that I've seen? I mean, all the... Uh, all the Resident Evils that he's done, but I, can't, I don't really have a take on those because those couple ones that he did, the first ones, I don't... I remember watching, but I don't remember actually seeing. Um, he did um, A Soldier? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Soldier, which I didn't see. Event Horizon, which Com- is wonderful. Event Horizon is such a, like, I don't know if I'd ever, like, sit down and watch it again, but that movie is insane. 
Yeah, it's great. Uh, um, it's the Legend of case, Hercules, Gladiator. by the way, is the Harlan movie. Legend of Hercules. Okay. so It's bad. So this movie is, I mean, I think it's fine. Yeah, I, don't, it's, I don't think it's. I, I watched it a lot when I was a kid. See, this, I, this is the first time I've seen it since like high school. And um, I think it's perfectly fine for what it is. Like a gussied up cheap Italian gladiator movie because they cast all like British dudes <laughs> and uh, they exposit about like the glory of Rome and very, very purple, uh, very extended, uh, basically two handers. Um, like Russell Crowe is like exactly is like perfectly class uh, cast as like this specific kind of hero. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays like a weird pervy bad guy. A, a lot of movies get better when you throw Oliver Reed and Richard Harris and Derek Jac- Jacobi in them. Oliver Reed was so goddamn good in this movie. He he's, really is. He's the one playing it exactly how it should be played because it's like operatic and silly and purple and ridiculous, but kind of awesome. If all if the entire movie was kind of on that level, we could be talking about a legitimately good film. But this movie, despite being released in the year of our Lord 2000, is the most 90s ass looking movie <laughs> I've seen in a good long while. The kind of like weird color palettes it uses, the sort of Tony Scott ass double exposure that Ridley doesn't quite nail. The fucked up action sequences that are cut to death. See, I feel like the thing that's kind of puts it over to 2000s era instead of 90s is the CGI for the city. Yeah, it doesn't look great. No, it, it doesn't. Well. But it was definitely looked great at the time. The fucking like the fucking tigers, the fucking CGI tigers. Yeah, not ideal. Not good. Um. So yeah, I don't think I think this movie is not without its meat-headed charms, but it costs two and a half hours. It does, like, it's it needs to be trimmed by quite a bit, especially since like the plot is basically like uh, Maximus gets taken as a gladiator, he reveals himself, and then he kills the he kills uh, Caesar. He kills the Joker, and that's it, really. Like there's a couple like extra things that happen in the middle there, but none of them really advance the plot. It's weird. Yeah, it's like, there's a version of this movie that's like fucking Predator, right? Yes. There's a version of this movie that's like a little a little more amped up and a little campier and a little more um, almost diet maliki in its treatment of its natural surroundings. Yes, I would agree. And in like, in like the, um, the, uh, the purple weight given to, uh, to like nature. And, and I, I think contrasting. Oh, sorry. Continue. No, no, go ahead. I was, saying, and I think, like, also, you could give more weight to his quest for vengeance instead of adding these weird political intrigue bits, because those end up muddying the waters and making it so that it feels like it's trying to it's trying to reach for something that it doesn't really know how to reach for, and it's also not that this is the sole decider of whether something is good. It's very not historically accurate, um, and it's uh-huh. also. I mean, that's fine. Well, I mean, it's fine until it ends up being a weird. Uh, it does the thing that I don't like in a lot of political allegories that use Rome, which is where it tries to map like Rome onto America mm-hmm. in a weird way. And that never quite works and it always makes me uncomfortable. I mean, like I, if you would have like, here's the thing. Mostly, I'll, be, I'll be honest. It's mostly because that's a big thing in the, in the right. So. Oh, I wasn't aware. Yeah. Uh, 
what do you call it? Stefan Molyneux has a very long and very bad video about why like Rome falling is the same as America falling. And we should look at the reasons why Rome fell. And one of them is the like grain subsidies and giving people grain, which is the same as welfare states, I guess. It doesn't make him a lot of <laughs> sense, but. I keep confusing uh, Stefan Molyneux and Peter Molyneux, the video game designer. <laughs> I, I, as much as I don't care for Peter Molyneux, he deserves better than that. <laughs> him and milo deserve uh, better than that remember milo who, my uh, milo milo the the racist guy no um i my, believe it was milo molyneux <laughs> um it was peter molyneux made a demo for the connect uh this was like the first thing people had oh, seen boy. from the connect and i believe it was called milo and in it there was like a little boy and the idea of it was that you would interact with this child as if he were real and you would talk okay. to him and you would like raise him and like you could like show him like, hey, let me show you how to fish. Or let me show you how to do this card trick. And he would just learn it from looking at like you through the connect. Yeah, Project Milo. Yeah. And needless to say, this did not come true. It was complete bullshit. Uh, and if you ever want to look up something really entertaining, a bunch of uh, video game journalists have written on what the backstage presentation for that looks like. It was apparently one of the most insane things you could imagine. Uh, highly the old history. Uh, well, we'll always have black and white, I guess. Um, so, uh, fuck, what was I guess? Yes, so if Gladiator would have taken, like, 15 minutes to really, really establish Maximus's wife and child. Yes. Instead of just having them as fucking sepia-toned ciphers. Who eventually get killed. Who eventually get Not even get eventually, killed. like, 20 minutes in the movie. Yeah, basically they exist. It's, it's, it's like... It's like, they like don't have any lines. Writing. They, yeah, they don't have any lines at all. Like, the kid has a couple lines, but they're mostly daddy. Yes. But it's, like, it's just it's just kind of like hack screenwriting. Yeah, and which, which like, is frustrating because I think those sequences are some of the most evocative in the film. Like, whenever he thinks back on his family farm and you get the, the like, vocal music, which is the best pieces in the film of music, I think the rest of the score is very, maybe it's been dulled by the fact that Hans Zimmer can make exactly one kind of score and he just does it all the fucking time. He's got a couple of other tricks, but he's he 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 knows what people want from him. Yes, um, but the vocal pieces are very like interesting and very feel very ethereal, and a lot of the shots that take place in the farm feel very ethereal, and those work. And I wish that there were more of them to establish what he's losing and what he lost. Fucking, fucking Ridley Scott. Can you please give everyone your Ridley Scott take? Because you said this in okay. our chat, and I was so enamored by this take that I want everyone to hear it. All right. Like, fucking... Okay, so Ridley Scott is like... Like, how... Okay, so... Well, well I mean, like, we should establish. We, we, I think we both agree that he is the best... He, he is the worst director that has made the best films. I think... I think his... I think his ceiling is way high relative to how low his ceiling can be it's very wild i think like it is insane that he's made like he that uh, he made two goat movies within three years mm -hmm. and has nothing resembling kind of a visual style yes. like i couldn't look at a ridley a ridley scott movie and go that's a ridley scott movie and it then it like i was hashing it out with isabel in our chat knows and it dawned on me the epiphany of the century fucking ridley scott is british ron howard there it is there it is. Like both men capable of greatness, but just kind of have this anonymous sort of carpenter artisanal style. They always seem to stumble into greatness. It never seems to be there on purpose. 
But like, I think but that neither both of them are just, just happy to work. Yeah, they're very happy to work. I don't think either of them is phoning it in. I think that's important. Neither of them is just giving up. They're both trying. No, they're both trying. And there's all there's always like um I think it yeah, there's the, there's nothing that tells me that these guys aren't trying. And there's nothing that tells me that these guys are bad, but they're just it's their their, their visual style makes no sense for their body of work. Yes. Like you look at movies across for these guys for even movies across the same franchise. Like you look at Alien, you look at Prometheus, those do not or Alien Covenant, those do not look like they're made by the same person. No, not at all. Like like they look as different from each other as Aliens and Alien 3 look from them. Exactly. And uh, for Ron Howard, I mean, just think of any two Ron Howard movies and neither of them look alike. Rush does not look like In the Heart of the Sea does not look like fucking the Da Vinci Apollo Code. 15, does not look like The Da Vinci Code does not look like Frost Nixon, you know? Yes. It's staggering that it's Ridley Scott is British Ron Howard. That's my take. I love it. I think like that's the take literally like that take felt revelatory when you said it to me. Cause I was like, Oh my God, there it is. There's it clicks into place. I get it now. I understand because this is a discussion that me and you and everyone else in Dim the House Lights have been having for a while. Because yeah, like, why, <laughs> like why two of my Ridley, favorite movies of all Ridley... time are Ridley Scott, but I would not consider him my favorite director in any sense. And he's, and he's got a lot of like good movies. I mean, I like, uh, I could probably like, like if I looked through it, I, like the I counselor. Name, like, 10 movies of his I really like. Telma and Louise, but none of these movies make sense with each other on a visual way. Uh, a friend of mine pointed out that uh, Ridley really likes world building, but that doesn't really show up on the camera. Yes. That's, L- but I, well, like, that shows like, up in featurettes of like uh, trailers for Alien Covenant that it, for some reason have important plot details that you should really know about in the real movie. Like Ridley's a conductor, like like he will, um, he will have the best talent available for the job. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the way, especially the movies of like the signatures of the movies that he works on rarely have anything to do with him specifically. Yeah, it's H.R. Geiger or it's Philip Dick or it's fucking uh, Andy Weir for The Martian. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has very little to do with him. He's an enabler. He's a conductor, but he's not a hack. No. But you know who is a hack? Um, tell me, Derek. I'm interested to hear who is a hack. Lassa Hallstrom. Let's talk about Hashi. Yeah, let's. This is. This it, is. It's, it's a very most... straightforward movie that might be the weirdest entry to this list, just because of how how it shouldn't be here. Let me let me read you the tweet that I wrote earlier just now. That I wrote a little earlier today. Uh, no, not that one. That one's vulgar. Yeah, because we can't have any vulgarity uh, on our podcast. Oh, no. We're talking about come all not. the time. <laughs> I think we, at this point, we actually talk more about talking about come than actually talking about come. That's true. We'll, uh, I'll, we'll try to get back to it. Well, the problem is we've all been inside, so there's no come to talk about. Uh, all right. Uh, here we go. That's two tweets, actually. I'm so fucking pissed that the fucking Richard Gere sad dog movie earned 0% of the many tears it wrested from me. And want a pull quote? Here's your goddamn pull quote. Quote, reading the Wikipedia page of the story this movie is based on is a vastly more emotionally nourishing experience than 93 minutes of collective sleepwalking that is Hashi a dog's tail. Yep, there it is. I mean, I think both me and you cried our eyes out this movie. I, oh, I, I sobbed no twice. Doubt. 
And that was why I was making fun of the movie to you because it's not a very good movie. It, and I don't just mean it's not a very good movie. I mean, it's barely a film in it's any real actively sense. actively bad. It is the last half hour is I was just in tears or on the verge of tears mm-hmm. and it didn't earn any of it. Because let me tell you about this movie, dear audience. This is a Hallmark Channel-ass movie. Oh, 100%. Directed and, by... And not even a good one of those. Like, there are good ones of those Hallmark-ass movies. And some of mm-hmm. them are actually directed by Charles Burnett. I mean, if, yeah, enough. that's true. Like, there, there are good directors making this kind of pablum into a good film. And then there's hacks like Lassie Hellstrom doing this shit. Okay, so, so this movie is based on... A very, very sad and very, very touching and very, very real story mm-hmm. of uh, of a Japanese Akita dog who, uh, after uh, his owner died, waited for him very diligently at the train station where he would normally take the train to go to work and come back from. Very, very sad shit. Jurassic Bark, the Futurama episode, is basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. But this where Jurassic like- Bark was 30 minutes and 20 of that was not... 20 of that was a completely different plot. This movie is 90 minutes of that exact thing that Derek just told you with essentially no elaboration. The only thing this movie can hang its hat on is the assumption, and I think by and large the correct assumption, that you think dogs are nice. (laughs) Because this movie is, for the first two acts, the first 60 minutes of this movie, you have Richard Gere, pretty good actor, sleepwalking through the motions of finding a dog and raising it, convincing his needlessly aggressively against dog's <laughs> wife, Joan Allen, that they should keep this dog. I think it's because they had recently had a dog that passed away. Yes. And I get it. But also, why the fuck would you not want this dog, even if you've had a dog just now? And the thing that convinces her is seeing her husband like crawl around in the dirt with a ball <laughs> in his mouth, trying to get Hachi to play fetch. I was sitting on my goddamn couch watching this movie and that scene happens. I see Richard Gere trying to teach his dog how to play fetch. And I said aloud to nobody, I'll bet you $50 that by the end of the scene, Richard Gere gets on all fours to teach the dog how to get the ball. And goddamn it, it happened. And I predicted- And I was so pissed off. I predicted twice like things that would happen in the film to you as I was watching it. One, I predicted that Hachi was a prophet. And knew <laughs> that something bad was going to happen to Richard Gere the day that it happened. And number two, I knew, I just knew as soon as like Hachi started walking back to the train station for the last time, oh, he's going to have a death vision of Richard Gere finally coming home. Which even as I'm saying it kind of makes me want to tear up because mm-hmm. it's just the kind he of thing that does, does that. It's it's It just feels like brute force. It is tearing tears out of you. Not by earning yeah. them, but just by doing the things that you know will be sad. Because nothing is sadder than than not being able to explain the concept of death to a pet. Yes. Because <laughs> pets are dumb. Like, that's, I mean, that's, I think I've said this in a previous episode, that's something that always has really been super difficult for me to deal with, is the idea that they're, whenever something bad happens to something, they cannot understand what happened to it. Yeah, that sucks ass. And so does this movie. <laughs> like, it, like, even from the font, like, it looks like mm. a direct to like TV movie. And then there's mm-hmm. the fucking black and white dog vision, mm-hmm. which I think was their attempt at adding some stylization to it. But it just, it looks like grainy iPhone footage that they end up putting a filter on. It's not even like actually processed black and white video. 
This is a direct-to-VHS Disney-ass movie that they got Jason Alexander to sleepwalk <laughs> through as well. And that's that's the other point that made me cry. It was, uh, Jason Alexander, like, he goes out to see Hachi. Uh, this is after Richard Gere has died. And he's like, hey, you don't need to wait for him anymore. Like, he's not coming back. And then he just says, you know what? You do, you do what you need to do, Hachi. And I was, like, sobbing. Because I was like, oh, my God, he does what he needs to do. Oh, he's grieving in his own way. Uh, but at the same time, Jason Alexander's character has no character. Hachi has no, no has character, character besides dog, which I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. Oh, 100%. But at the same time, it's nothing. This is a nothing movie. How, like, how is this on the IMDb Top 50? Is it literally just because people were like, oh, sad dog movie? Because there's plenty I mean, of sad dog movies. Marley and Me is not on this list. Like fucking Watership Down isn't on this movie. You know, Homeward Bound. I mean, that's not a, that's not a dog movie. That's a rabbit movie. But whatever. Yeah. Like, if you just want to sad- cry at animals, there's a lot of options. Why there's is options. this the option that we got? <sighs> like, you are in deep shit when your movie is bested by the subject's Wikipedia page in terms of emer- emotional resonance. Yes. Like, I I could literally just look up the page for Hachiko right now and probably cry. And actually be like, I don't read that Wikipedia page. Yes. I can't. And like, I, 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 it's, it, it, it works too well. It's like, I can't read it at work because my coworkers are going to be like, the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> and then I got to explain myself through tears. But that would take <sighs> like five minutes to do. It wouldn't take yeah. 90 minutes of nothing happening. No, it's like, it's. I think you said it best. It's like this movie is rendered obsolete by cute YouTube videos of animals doing animal things. Yes. Like I could literally just Google like cute puppy videos and get everything that I enjoyed about this film, which was the early parts with like the puppy, like doing puppy stuff. Why is like, I don't want to do this cinema sense shit, but like, why is the dog in like, like, un, like unattended to in transit? <laughs> yeah. That's really weird. And also one of the strangest parts of the movie is so Richard Gere dies. And Richard Gere dies. The his kids, uh, her his daughter and her husband, end up taking Hachi to their new place, and Hachi gets out and uh, goes back to the train station, and they take Hachi back, uh, and then the daughter basically says, "Hey, if you need to go, just hang out at the train station. I'm just gonna let you go," and just like opens the gate and just lets Hachi go instead of being like, "Hey, maybe we can get someone nearby that like lives nearby so Hachi can live with them and go to train station every once in a while or uh, go to train station yeah. every day, which is the yeah, logical because- answer to what's happening. Instead, she's like, go sleep in the train yard. You'll be good. Yeah, because fun- like functionally, Hachi becomes a stray. Yes. He, he literally Just sleeps under train a train. Which is a universal symbol for like, uh, for like, uh, for being homeless, I guess. Yeah. If you sleep- and he gets if, all this food if, from if like the hot dog like a- vendor. Uh, yeah, um, I'm really annoyed at the fact that this, that this, like, this is a movie that also, not need to be whitewashed. Oh, God, yes. Like, they got, they got, they got, uh, what's his name? Uh, Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa for two reasons. One, to explain what Hachi means. <laughs> and two, so they could have him fucking stick fight Richard Gere in a kendo match in fucking slacks and button downs. And also to, to speak Japanese to Hachi for like a scene. For a scene. It's very strange. This movie. And, and also one of, one of my favorite parts sucks. of it. The thing that kept happening and I was so baffled by is the music will do something. And, the, and the, the camera will do things that make you think there's danger coming. 
Like that, that yes. Hachi is in danger, that someone's going to be mean to Hachi, someone's going to hurt Hachi. That never happens. And it never seems like it's on purpose, but it keeps happening <laughs> over and over. Like the first time you meet the daughter's uh, future husband, there's like that scene where he trips over like the like bocce ball thing. And it looks mm-hmm. like he's going to kill Hachi. <laughs> like it's the you know strangest choice. That's because Lassa Hallstrom sucks ass at directing. Hey, Lassa Hallstrom is in the Criterion Collection. How could you say that, Derek? What's in the Criterion Collection of his? Uh, my Life is a Dog. His other dog movie. <laughs> That's my favorite joke. It's not actually, uh, But he did make, what is it, A Dog's Purpose? A Dog's Purpose. I would have preferred to uh, watch A Dog's Purpose than this movie. I mean... It's more of a movie. Okay. There's things that happen in A Dog's Purpose. I would rather chain. I would rather just chain watch his fucking seventies ass proto proto music videos for ABBA than watch this again. (laughs) Like, regardless of what you might think of the of the Swedish pop group ABBA, those aren't great music videos, right? It was before the form matured. Yes, I would agree. So, but at least you get to hear ABBA songs. At least you get to hear ABBA songs. And but here's like he also directed shit like Souter. Like he has the sort of. He's kind of like in that sort of like right down the middle, mid, uh, middle brow sensibility that we're into here. Because mm-hmm. this is his run from like 99 Cider House Rules, 2000 Chocolat, 2001 Shipping News. And then there's like a four year break before he comes back with an unfinished life with like Robert Redford and shit. And, and, and prior to Hashi, he works on The Hoax with Richard Gere, which I suspect is how fucking Lassa Hallstrom like like fucking uh, wrangled Richard Gere into this wrangled Richard Gere into this like what the fuck is this movie and what the fuck is it doing in the top 50 you fucking rubes (laughs) just because a movie makes you cry doesn't mean it's good yes and doesn't mean it's bad either but it doesn't mean it's good literally you could hey if you're if you were thinking of watching Hachi you should literally just watch Jurassic Park again you're gonna like it more yeah it's gonna be way better and and it's gonna take up a third of your time yeah I mean like there are a million like here's the thing it doesn't even have to be a sad movie here's a little here, here's a little behind the scenes thing for for Derek here um i refuse or i have not deliberately sought out to see the uh turkish cat documentary kedi because there's no way i make it through the first 10 minutes without just dehydrating <laughs> because of the amount of tears that i'll shed right like oh yeah there's there's no way. I mean, I'm sure I'd love the movie, but there's no way I'd be able to get through this movie in one piece, right? I would rather watch that than watch this again. <laughs> I'd rather watch a lot of things than watch this movie again. This is one of the worst movies I've seen in a good long while. Not because it made me cry, but because it barely exists. <laughs> and when we talk about audience manipulation, we talk not just about emotions. We talk about when we talk about the cinematic manipulators, we talk about people who were wizards with mise-en-scene who were wizards with uh with cinematic language this like you had just said i really like the way that you put this basically forces tears out of your eyes because you value dogs and that is some cheap shit like we we talked previously about grave of the fireflies which is also a movie that made me fall but the difference is that movie actually does stuff to earn that it has characters. It puts in work. It has like fully fleshed out characters that have inner lives and that you care about. It's about the war. And it has themes. Imagine it, that. It has themes. It has themes. The, the f- sole <laughs> theme of this film is oh, two themes. One, 
dogs are wonderful. Two, nagging wives are bitches. <laughs> Which if you want that, you can just watch Goodbye to Language. I will take your word for it. Uh, so, Gladiator, we will see you in round two, bud. Uh, okay, hold up. Hold up. Wait. Oh, no. Really? I kind of want to move Hachi No on. fucking way. Here's, here's no. the thing. If both of them are losing next round. doesn't matter. If you're asking me which movie I'd rather rewatch again, it's fucking Gladiator 100% oh, of the I would way. rather rewatch Hachi. A, it's, a, a, oh, a, it's half as long. Which That's is not true. nothing. But B... This is the dumbest tie ever. <laughs> B, Hachi has a cute puppy for part of it. Which gave me more joy than anything in Gladiator. <sighs> I don't know. I like the meathead, the purple meathead charms of Gladiator way more of anything that I like. Like, I have two cats. I don't need to watch a movie about a cute animal. Yeah, well, some of us don't have animals in our lives right now. (sighs) I I can't let Hachi go on. That's ridiculous. Here's what I'll say. I think that, like, factually, Hachi is a far worse movie than Gladiator. (laughs) I'm just talking about in terms of one that I'd rather watch again. I'd rather rewatch Hachi. Oh, my lord. Are you going to make me use a veto for fucking Gladiator? No, I think we should just talk about this a little bit instead of just dismissing Hachi like like you're doing. We just spent 20 minutes shitting on it. That was fun, right? That was fun to do. Yeah, but you want to do it again? I mean, like... I've said everything I need to say about this movie. I I think that, like... (sighs) I want to hear you talk about more more about how uh, Rome being used as a cult for America is like some fucking weird shit. Because that's interesting, and it's far more interesting about anything we could possibly say in the future about this fucking dog movie. Well, Derek, it sounds like you have a very strong opinion about this. Uh, here, here's the thing. I have not been mad about a movie in a very long time, and it took Hachi to bring out that rage. This movie made me hopping mad. Okay. Well, I feel like I'm going to lose this one. I don't want to make you use a veto. On Gladiator, I feel like that's <laughs> that's the cruelest thing I could do, uh, and Wouldn't I'm definitely be... not using a veto on Hachi. Like Jesus fucking Christ! <sighs> so I will begrudgingly let Gladiator move on. I would rather have that shit on as background noise than than Hachi. But I want to I want to I make rather... clear that it is a begrudging choice. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry Gladiator you don't like no cute great puppies, sh- Derek. Gladiator is no great shakes. But Hushy, A Dog's Tale is literally one of the worst movies I've seen in a good long time. <laughs> okay. Both both visually and conceptually. Okay. Congratulations, Gladiator, uh, for just narrowly beating out Hachi, A Dog's Tale uh, to go up against Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Enjoy, enjoy your time in the sun because the sunrise is going to make sunset come really quick for you. That sounds like, like, uh, like a really bad uh, Muhammad Ali line. <laughs> Bad Muhammad Ali is still pretty good. Uh, so. Oh, man, that I can't believe there was a slight chance, an infinitesimal chance that Hashi was going to make it to round two. Hashi makes it in, but not David Fincher. Fuck that. I'm against it. <laughs> uh, what do we do next? <laughs> what do we do next? Um, ostensibly, we do plugs, but I don't know if you've got anything that goes in before that. Yeah, so we have one more thing. Uh, is a follow-up from... Uh, chapter two of our our illustrious fan fiction. Yep. Uh, the, the, the untitled uh, Isabella Arf Project. Which, if you have a title for it, join our Discord and uh, you can let me know that it, what that is because I have no idea. That, that, might, 
that might prove to be difficult because we don't really know what it's about. Yeah, it's not really a plot yet. Uh, all we know so far is that Michael J. Fox got an ominous phone call that seemed to imply uh-huh. time travel of some sort. Mm-hmm. And he called his friend Rancho to, for help, who he might have a previous relationship with. Yeah, that's not a whole lot to hang your hat on as far as giving it a title. Yes. Um, but here is... Unless, unless we want to go with something super generic like uh, Marty and Rancho's Excellent Adventure or some shit. Oh, that's not bad. I don't, I don't mind that. But there will be more characters, so... Okay. Um, so, chapter three of the untitled Middlebrow Madness fanfiction. How'd he buy it, she asked from the other side of the room, looking at her laptop absentmindedly as the man leaning against the counter hung up on their last call of the day. Hook, line, and sinker. After I said those lines you wrote up for me, didn't even bother trying to argue again. Good call on that. She shrugged, smiling to herself, but not wanting to come off too cocky. I had a feeling those would work, she said, turning to look outside the window of their Seattle hotel room. It was summer, so the famous Washington rain was nowhere to be seen. Boats bustled in and out of the harbor, huge shipments heading somewhere else or coming in heavy with the weight of what they carried, looking like toys in a creek from their vantage point high, high up. She chose these rooms so she could see the Puget Sound, see the trees while they set up their plan, put the pieces into motion. It soothed her, so different from where she had grown up, yet feeling like that familiar and particular sense of home. You had a feeling? You're being modest. You set it all up after all. You know what's going to happen. Must be what being a time traveler is like. He spoke softly and pulled at his shirt sleeves, pulling the flannel black down to his wrists, chuckling softly to no one at all. He was guiding the ship, steering it, keeping things on course. But it was her who took them on unexpected routes, small detours through unexpected shapes in the landscape. And he still didn't have quite a handle on how she chose to do that or why. The plan was obvious, sure, but the details never seemed to congeal so easily. Not quite, she said slowly, thinking about how to phrase what she would say next. Each time we rewrite the beginning of this, it makes these changes to the whole in a way that can't be predicted. Just because we have a plan doesn't mean the plan doesn't change. She considered whether this was enough of an explanation, and after living in the pause for what seemed like minutes, she decided it was, at least for now. They both sat in silence for a bit, making corrections and verifications in their phones and computers, researching, coordinating, comparing notes. If they were going to see the end of this, at least in the broad strokes of how they wanted it to end, there was still an awful lot to be set up. The daylight of the Pacific Northwest had a certain color to it, a certain sense of mystery, of unknown ends and means. It wasn't like the crowded liveliness of LA, or the brisk Midwest chill of Chicago, or the far-reaching desert emptiness of the states between. It carried on it an amorphous sense of supernatural beyondness, of unanswered and unasked questions. The hotel room was cool, and stale in the way water gets stale sitting on a nightstand. The man hummed to himself while he worked on the one thing that was still bothering him question that she refused to answer until later on, until the plan had gone far enough that it could no longer be derailed. It made him nervous, this detail, this part of this memory that should be there but was carved out, surgically, precisely, a victim of her omission. There was a piece of him somewhere that just didn't add up, even though he knew it should. Can I ask you something? She looked over from her work, surprised, even as she knew what the question was going to be. Of course, she said, knowing further that she wouldn't be able to answer him. Who are we? Alright, so plug time. If for some reason you like any of this, <laughs> we're um, deeply sorry. You can't, first of all, we're deeply sorry. We appreciate your patronage, but we are also deeply sorry. Um, you can drop us a line at uh you can tell us how much you like us 
at uh, millbrownmadness at gmail.com. Uh, we're also soliciting vegan recipes, uh, British takes on the Picts, uh, Bollywood recommendations, and pretty much anything that you think is cool and uh, would, uh, anything that we would think is cool. Um, you can also go to Apple Podcasts and give us the old five-star treatment or however many stars you think we're worth. Um, leave a review. Uh, if you do, we will 100% read it on the show because we don't get many. <laughs> um, and if you want to get in touch with us specifically, you can also contact the show on Twitter at middlebrowpod. Uh, we're also on Twitter. I am at Derek underscore G and Isabel is at Space Jam Fan. Uh, with those same handles, we are both on Letterboxd. I am at Derek underscore G and Isabel is at Space Jam Fan. Um, uh, you can listen to other shows on our podcast network, the Noise Space Podcast Network. All of the shows can be found at noisespace.xyz. Um, and of course, join the Discord. A link will be in the show notes. Uh, if you want to join in on the fun question mark, <laughs> uh, and I think that's it. Uh, yeah, as far as I can think, that is everything. Uh, until next time, I've been Isabel Arf, and I've been Derek Gane. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night, everybody. Good night.